Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Carrie Johnson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. We have three guests joining us today for a special episode. Forrester analysts Stephanie Beloris, James McQuivy, and Andrew Bartels will join us to discuss the impact of COVID-19. We'll have three segments on this episode. First, on the employee experience. Second, business continuity planning. And third, on the impact of global tech markets. Before we get into our conversation today, we wanted to mention that we're recording this on Monday, March 9th. Obviously, this issue is changing rapidly, so we wanted our listeners to have some context on when this is recorded before we dive in. First, we'll hear from James and Stephanie discussing some recent survey work Forrester is doing to assess the impact of COVID-19 on businesses and employees. So last week, we started fielding a, a survey around coronavirus and its impact on the employee experience. So I'd love to just dive in there, some of the results, and I'll let you guys take it from here. Well, sure, absolutely, thank you. Uh, yes, we, what we recognize is there's a lot of information about coronavirus, the COVID-19 disease that it causes. We recognize that there are plenty of excellent sources for the health side of this. and. But one of the things we understood is that employees are wondering, okay, sure, there's the economy at large, but what about my job? And we didn't see a source for that. So we decided to become the source for that. And we've done that in a couple of ways. And we're in wave one, or we've just come out of wave one. So what we'll share with you today is wave one, U.S. only, survey of adults over 18 plus uh, who have a job, part-time or full-time. And we're familiar with the coronavirus as of the time that we surveyed them. There were people who didn't qualify because they weren't familiar, which itself is interesting. So what we did, we surveyed 470 people by midnight on Friday night. We took it out of the field and we're just now live as we're talking, going through those data and we'll be preparing some of the results for obviously our clients and sharing as much as we can with the public uh, to make sure that people in the public are aware of you know, if I'm feeling concerned at work, am I the only one? And the answer is no, and we'll share some of that. And it's been great to partner with Stephanie on this to understand, okay, when we read numbers like, and, and I'll share one with you, Stephanie, this one won't come as a surprise because we looked at the early results last week and it was the same number. And so it hasn't changed. It was, does your organization have a plan for how you'll manage the risk associated with the coronavirus? And 43% of people agreed that their organization has a plan. Does that still fill your heart with dread? <laughs> it does, because that means the majority still don't have a plan. I can't say I'm surprised. Um, most companies do have a business continuity plan, but it's a generic plan, or it tends to be impact, which is they make an assumption that there's a general loss of people, a loss of facility, a loss of IT. But there are certain threats, and pandemic is one of them, where you really need a specific plan because the considerations um, and your specific response is so much different than a generic scenario. Yeah. Well, and you can imagine that one of the things we're going to spend the next several days doing is looking at how these kinds of confidence statements correlate with other statements. I just, I'll share with you, I don't even know that I've had a chance to tell you this yet, but 29% of working adults in the U.S. are afraid to go to work because of the risk of exposure. And I expect that number to go up uh, in the U.S. So 29%, I think it's actually fairly high right now, given that I think the general public is really just coming to grips and to terms with this virus. I mean, it was first de detected in China sometime in late December. 
China really made it public to the whole world only in early January. And it was really confined to China, I think, for about two and a half months. And the Chinese government just went through extreme measures to lock down the city of Wuhan and even the broader Hubei province. Uh, there were travel restrictions. I mean, they, they took some extraordinary steps. So I, th- I feel like the U.S. in particular and even Western Europe, it's only really been for the last two weeks where this has really been part of the public conversation and the consciousness. So 29 percent, I think, is actually a, a fairly high number. Which I'll say, this is the reason why we're going to go back in the field with a second wave. Uh, Our plan right now is next week so that we will be able to say, all right, how did it change from week one to week three? And then we'll do it again two weeks after that, week five, and we'll be able to see how these numbers change. Uh, We do, at this point, we don't have enough people that we can say how it's different by industry. But, you know, we're analysts. We know it's going to be different by industry, by job type, by those kinds of things. So hopefully over time, we'll be able to see more data and have more of that information. This one obviously is part of why we study this. Um, My company has the technology resources to allow people to work from home if necessary. 48%. 48%. I think that's about average. I mean, the one thing I will say about the work from home strategy, um, it, it is everybody's primary strategy and it is a good one. A couple things people should be careful of. Um, Just because your company has always offered work from home strategy doesn't mean suddenly that your company has the ability to support 80% of your workforce working from home. Um, There's a lot of considerations about the performance impact on your applications, um, whether even your company's VPN has enough licenses to support that many people suddenly working from home. There's even assumptions about the cloud providers. So for companies that have gone to the cloud for everything, um, business applications, collaboration applications, we're making an assumption that those cloud providers have the ability to handle this surge of people suddenly working working from home and suddenly using all of their collaboration technologies. Um, in China, you know, we we have a couple of colleagues based there, and you know, they said the first couple of weeks actually there were outages in some of the collaboration platforms because it just couldn't handle the spike in demand. There's also employees that can't work from home. Uh, frontline workers, uh, any kind of worker that works in a facility like manufacturing, fulfillment centers. Um, a lot of customer service centers are still physical. They're not virtual in, in nature as well. Yeah. I'll say I was speaking to a vendor this morning that uh, does software that helps in call centers, contact centers. And their primary challenge right now is that the the if we were to do this survey just among employees of call centers, I think the numbers would be really high. Because they are aware they're coming to a center where everyone's densely packed together and all of them are speaking and uh, essentially sharing the same air all day long. Um, So there's definitely, it's going to vary by industry, by job type, what kind of concern we see. I I also think uh, I'll get to some of the impacts that we're seeing on how business is being conducted. So 46% of people say that their company is providing hygiene-related resources. That's probably primarily... um, hand sanitizer at this point. Um, 32% of people say their company has restricted or canceled business travel at this stage. And remember, this is already last week that we were surveying. I think the number would be higher if we surveyed today. Or do you think? It would definitely be higher today. One thing with pandemics is that they change daily Mm -hmm. as they unfold. Um, And sometimes even when you think you're at the peak there's uh, a dampening of new cases, particularly as you go into different seasons and then there's spikes again. So the situation unfolds daily. So, you know, uh, right now Italy has more cases than South Korea and South Korea is actually starting to see a dip in some of its infected cases. You know, within the U.S., we see certain cities starting to spike. 
So I, I expect companies to actually update their travel restriction policies, maybe sometimes as frequently as twice a week. Updating meaning progressively getting more restrictive, or do you think it'll go both ways as different data come available? If we were to talk about the U.S. and Western Europe right now, I think it's going to get progressively more restrictive for the next month and a half. And then at some point, we're going to hit peak. Um, and mean, in the meantime, other countries are going to have already reached their peak, and they'll actually be safer. So, yeah, to your point, I think in about a month and a half, you could actually see other travel restrictions lifted. I see. Um, okay. Some other countries have actually done a really amazing job at um, d- disease detection, surveillance, um, just overall um, – health services that have been promoting recovery quickly. Singapore is an amazing example of that. Yeah, that's been the model, it looks like. Uh, I'll say, even though we said that 32% of people say their companies have enacted business travel restrictions, only 16% of people have personally had to cancel a business trip. Given that this is U.S. only? Yes, U.S. only. Not, not surprised. I would, I'm going to guess that if in about two weeks, we're at least going to be double that number. If not even triple US. that number, even in the U.S. And, and you think it's already there in some European c- countries? Yes, absolutely. Like I said, Italy is actually has more cases than South Korea right now. It's the largest country outside of China with, uh, yeah. with the largest number of infected uh, cases and it's spreading pretty rapidly across Europe. And they have locked down the whole northern region of Lombardy. So that, that seems... Uh, to explain some of that concern. I, as I look at it, the, maybe the last data I'll share with you, and we have so much here. I, we're just trying to share a little bit of it so that people get a sense of what we have and we'll be sharing as much as we can in the coming days. But I want to end on this one from the data. Um, it's not super encouraging. I have confidence in the president or head of my company to handle the coronavirus risk. That's less than half. It's close to half, <laughs> but it's less than half. What, what do you think that means? I think... It's interesting. We we actually run a lot of uh, surveys on just general business continuity trends, and we always ask this question, which is, what is the biggest lesson learned from from one of your prior prior invocations? And this is across all types of scenarios: IT outages, extreme weather. And one of the biggest lessons is that there hadn't been enough communication throughout the event. And I think that's one of the cases here, which is uh, companies sometimes err on on the on caution of not communicating uh, a lot because they're worried about inciting panic. Um, they don't exactly know what to communicate. And pandemic, you actually need to communicate um, before, during, and after. And you can't over-communicate in this scenario. I think people need a lot of, like you said, like confidence and reassurance. Um, because travel restrictions and other policies will change frequently, uh, you need to continuously communicate that. Uh, the second thing is actually training and awareness. People say there hadn't been enough training and awareness um, in their role and responsibility and what to do in the plan itself. And I think the pandemic actually will exacerbate that. So people are probably suffering from a lack of communication from their executives. They've received no training. They have no awareness. So overall, there's probably an assumption that somebody's working on something. They just don't know. They just don't know what it is. I like that you brought up that this is, you have to prepare for it. You have to communicate during it. And then after that recovery phase, I think it's going to be a unique challenge. I mean, we're certainly seeing it in other areas of the business recovering from a marketing perspective, recovering uh, certainly from a technology perspective, but but from an employee perspective, there's going to be some possible long-term implications of this. You know, you and I have talked about will work from home become a more common thing? Will virtual conferences become more common? Those are all interesting questions. I Right down to the question of will we shake hands less often a year from now just out of habit 
than we used to a year ago. Uh, do you see any of these long-term things in the culture of how we get business done every day that, that might stay permanently altered? It's interesting. You know, after swine flu in about 2009, 2010, that's when remote work really took off because that was the prime, uh, you know, workforce continuity strategy. And then after about, you know, eight years, people sort of went back to like, no, let's come in the office. Like, you know, you need to th- be there to collaborate in person and be a role model for for other employees. So I feel like this is going to shift us back to remote work. Um, and, and then there's other benefits right now in this day and age with with remote work. But I agree with you, too. Some of the hygiene basics, uh, you know, there's also jokes like, well, why weren't you washing your hands anyway? In the first place. <laughs> uh, yeah. In the first place. Um, some, of the, some of that is true. I mean, I think we lose sight of the, the, the basics. Um, or don't come to work when you're sick. Yeah, or don't come to work when you're sick. That's uh, that's easier said than done, though. I mean, you know, we're seeing Trader Joe's say we're going to come up with a policy that allows people to to stay home and still get paid if they're sick. But then, sure, the money is an important issue, and hats off to them for that. But what about the cultural context of your fellow coworkers being like, "Hey, how come you're not even here? You know, you're getting paid for staying at home." That the cultural issues are going to matter, right? No, they do matter. I mean, I, I once worked for a consultancy that if you left at seven p.m., there would always be these snide comments like, "Thanks for the half day," oh. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be interesting. So, last possible thing I'll bring up about uh, how life might change. Uh, saw this on Twitter, won't take credit for it, but someone said, we are raising the generation that's going to wash their hands like surgeons for the rest of their lives. Because you could see that, you know, this I've never bothered to scrub under my fingernails before now, and now I do, but I don't know that it'll stay with me. No, that is true. I mean, one one thing that is changing, you know, uh, swine flu was about 10 years ago, and before that, it had been 40 years since we had a, a pandemic. And let's assume that COVID-19 actually is officially a pandemic within a week or so. Um, the time frame between pandemics is getting shorter. So I would, I would suspect it's not going to be another 10 years to the next one. It's going to be another five. So culturally, um, we might be uh, ingrained to prepare, better prepare for pandemics the next time. And it might also just become a way, a way of life, unfortunately. James, I know you have to run, but what's coming next with the survey? Well, as I said, we'll have more of this data coming out in the coming days, literally. And then we'll be doing another wave. Uh, just uh, two weeks from now. So we'll we'll get back together and talk more about it and share it with our, our clients and listeners. So Stephanie, we just heard you and James walk through a number of stats about how employees are feeling and you sort of weaved in a bit of what companies or organizations should be considering in terms of their business continuity planning and what have you. But maybe we can just take a step back and discuss what exactly should firms be doing at this juncture, given sort of the state of the state of, of coronavirus and COVID-19? I think, you know, step one is building that response team. Um, you start with your core business continuity planning team. Those individuals should be already identified. Um, and then add to them and it should be made up of executives. So Mm -hmm. for example, like the head of HR, um, key business leads from however your organization is is organized, either by by function or product or su- service. Uh, the CIO, um, chief sales officer, and whoever's in charge of customer service. And then the one, one role that I would add would be chief marketing officer, the CMO. I, I think in many instances in the past, like we haven't necessarily included the CMO as part of the response team. I think in this case, because there's going to be an impact on customers and you have to be very careful about what you communicate externally, um, you absolutely have to include your your CMO. I think what's also different this time around, in a lot of business continuity plans, it might actually 
be the head of business continuity or might be the CIO in charge of the response, you definitely want to put your head of HR in charge of the response because so much of what you're going to implement is going to be about policies as opposed to technology. Technology will be helpful, but it's really going to be a lot about like policies and actually business leaders making decisions about um, alternate sources of supply chain and parts and uh, hiring contract workers. So, so much of what you need to do is not going to be technology. You alluded in, I think, a blog post that says to something along the lines of, hey, dust off your pandemic plans. Is it really best practice to have one sitting around that gathers dust? I'm, I'm kind of asking a leading question here. It seems like a bad idea. Yeah, definitely. The reason I said dust off is, you know, it, this is the second time in the last 10 years we've had a pandemic. And, you know, technically, while the World Health Organization hasn't labeled um, coronavirus as a pandemic, I think they will shortly. Um, but it's been about 10 years since we had to deal with swine flu around 2009, 2010. So th that forced companies to actually write pandemic plans. And so I know a lot of companies have them. I just don't think that they've looked at them because typically what, what companies do with business continuity plans is maybe they test it once a year, maybe twice a year, and they'll pick the most common scenario. And the most common scenario is going to be IT outage, power outage, extreme weather event, maybe even human error. Um, maybe bad behavior on the part of an executive. But what they haven't been doing is testing the pandemic scenario. Um, yeah, because 10 years go by, you're like, oh, we're not going to be facing another pandemic anytime soon. So that's not the scenario that you that you test. Um, so that's, I know I know companies have them. So, so it's like, go back to it. It's not a bad place to start, but chances are people who were around back then might be gone. Um, a lot of the assumptions that you built into that plan might not be current anymore. So Structurally, it was a good starting point, um, but you're right. It's going to be have it's going to have to be revised heavily because uh, coronavirus is also not swine flu either. There's some differences, right? And to I think an earlier point you made, you want a plan that is specific to the situation on the ground, not just a generic plan. Or how how do you go about? You know, you have your basic continuity plan, but then you want to customize it to what's what, what's happening on the ground today. Yeah, I mean, what's different with the pandemic is, as opposed to like a, a generic business continuity plan, a lot of times um, business, a BC plan is uh, episodic. Mm -hmm. So, oh, a hurricane's coming. A hurricane comes, it hits, and you've got about, you know, two weeks of recovery. Um, or you've got a, a specific IT failure. It's very episodic. A pandemic unfolds over months, even maybe a large portion of an entire year. So the duration is much longer. And throughout that duration, the risk profile is constantly changing. Things might be getting worse as it spreads. Then you might head into a specific season where it dies down and then it spikes again. So the, the risk profile is constantly changing. Throughout that, you, have, you might also have different rates of employee absenteeism. It could be 5% in the beginning, then 15%, then 40%. So that means like your, your plan has to account for those different scenarios. And you might have to adjust your plan as you, as you go because there could be scenarios you didn't account for. Um, supply chain shortages and disruptions. Again, a lot of BC plans make an assumption that it's just you that's impacted or somebody or in the immediate region, not like global supply chains and global, global travel as well. And then you're also dealing with a lot of government mandated um, events as well. Uh, travel restrictions, uh, event, clo event closures and other sort of restrictions as well. So the, the pandemic really is unique. So that's why if, if you either have one, dust it off, or if you've never written one, now's the time to actually start writing one specifically. And that phasing approach that you're talking about is probably very critical to dealing with a pandemic versus these other situations that you've named. 
Yeah, exactly. I think the absenteeism, those are scenarios that you need to plan for. I think you need to plan for specific supply chain disruptions, again, depending on the nature of your business, if you, you know, rely on parts or certain inventory or your, you know, consumer food good, and you're talking about actual food products as well and mm-hmm. agriculture. So you, you have to have different scenarios that you're, that you're adapting to. In your research, you've said there are three steps to pandemic planning. So if you don't have one, what are those steps that, that folks should be going through? Yeah, so step one was the putting that executive response team together mm-hmm. with those individuals that I mentioned. And that team should meet daily, um, not just like once write the plan. They should meet daily because you're going to continuously update the plan and those policies. And that team should have virtual capabilities itself. So, you know, if you can't meet uh, in person, you can still meet virtually. You know, executives are just as susceptible as as frontline employees to catching the virus. So also have succession plan so that if an executive can't be part of that response team, there's someone who can take his or her place and has the same level of authority and respect to make to make decisions. So that's sort of step number one. Step number two is just doing a business impact analysis. Again, companies should have should have one. But back to our earlier point, when was the last time they refreshed it? In my experience, it's they do it about once a year. So, you know, if you're at the 11th month mark of the last refresh of your business impact analysis, you're going to have to um, do a rapid refresh of it. And that's identifying like your core business functions. So, again, your consumer goods, what does it take for me to manufacture my product and deliver it? And what are all the key dependencies and resources that go into that? Uh, It could be anything from people to physical assets to all of your supply chain partners. That'll help you determine uh, what the potential impact of COVID is on certain under certain scenarios, again, imagine 5% absenteeism, 15% of absenteeism, critical supplier is is missing. Um, also help you uh, prioritize which of your kind of core business processes you really need to shore up the most. And maybe there are some processes that, hey, if they're impacted, you know, so be it. We can, we can run without them, maybe albeit in a slightly um, diminished state. That could be, that could be fine. So maybe, you know, you're reporting, <laughs> isn't as important um, as delivering customer front end customer services. I think when you're doing that business impact analysis to the, you're classifying your, your core business processes. You're also thinking about the employees work from home is a great strategy. It's not going to work for all of your, your, all of your employees. Um, Again, depending on the nature of your business, frontline employees, employees in certain facilities, uh, you know, your contact centers, if they're not virtual already, then you still have like physical employees there. So you're not going to have the same strategy for all of your different employees. Um, So it might mean that you might actually need to think about like alternatives. So for example, you might actually need to hire some contract workers given those different rates of absenteeism. Uh, Financial services firms actually have a good ability to like do workload rotation. So if you're a global company in financial services, you might be able to shift customer service and other types of uh, functions w- might be sales to other regions where you have major offices and employees. Um, you might actually have to make the hard decision that you might have to close locations and, and facilities. And in China, if you looked at some of the major retailers, they 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 had to close facilities. Um, part of it was their fiduciary responsibility not to not to spread uh, the disease, but part of it is you just don't have the employees to continue continue operating. And so the third step after you know. You pull the response team together. You do a rapid business impact analysis to get that contextual information that you need. Now you can actually write down the plan. So the key things you need is the communication strategy. I put it first because every event, it's always the biggest lesson learned. Um, It's really hard to communicate effectively under duress. So you have to put a lot of thought 
thought into it. Um, and you tailor messages for different audiences, your employees, your customers versus your partners, um, as well as the public at large as well about what you're, what you're doing, the frequency, what kind of channels you use. And, and there's actually software that can help you disperse the, the right communication um, at scale uh, with reliability. The preventative measures, and that's everything from the travel restrictions to the good hygiene in the office. Um, one thing I will say about the office is social distancing. So if you have the kind of office where it's an open floor plan, people are used to uh, collaborating around like a table, you might want to give some guidance about having some social distance in between employees even when they come, even when they come to the office. Um, all the kind of changes to employee sick leave and remote office uh, that we've discussed, those are really important. Um, and then I would just say too, I know I've hammered on this. The work from home is a great strategy, but you should also be relying on cross-training of employees, uh, succession planning, thinking about contract work and outsourcing. You're going to need to employ all of those strategies, not just assume that everybody can work from home. Because at some point people will be sick or their loved ones will be sick uh, as well. And then like we talked about, there's some roles that just don't facilitate well from work from home. Uh, the technology, the technology that facilitates remote work and collaboration is important. The technology for crisis communication is critical. Um, and then I do think this can be part of the communication, but ongoing training and awareness for all of your employees. Um, like I said, in, in prior events, people just didn't know their roles and responsibilities or where to go for information. So there's steps that you can take beyond basic communication. And the, the last thing I will say, I didn't make it an official step. It's sort of part of step three would be to actually test the plan. Um, so actually, there's a large financial services firm that is deliberately sending 10% of its workforce home now just to test out its collaboration mm. capabilities. Again, can they can they handle the load on on their applications and even minor things like their VPN, as an example? Um, this is the cultural aspect of suddenly having a large workforce working from home. So a lot of companies are um, actually testing that huge aspect of the plan right now. And that'll give you the ability to also test your communication strategy. So that, that one I think is really, really important. I have a somewhat naive, hopefully quick question about remote working and some of the concerns I'm seeing about loads. Wasn't this the benefit of moving to the cloud that we could sort of scale demand up and down? Is the problem that everyone's scaling demand up at the same time? Yeah, there's that. In, you know, in China, as an example, some of the cloud providers had trouble hmm. um, meeting, meeting the demand of um, so many people suddenly working from home or, or quarantine. Um, and then actually for most large enterprises, they're not 100% cloud, they're mm -hmm. hybrid. Mm -hmm. So you may, they might actually just have 20% of their workloads in the cloud and then 80% is back is still back on premise. And then companies do some odd things with their networking where even if they've moved to a cloud provider, if somebody's working remotely, they actually still backhaul their traffic back to their main data center and then out to the cloud provider, you know, for a variety of reasons. It's not the most efficient way of doing mm -hmm. things, but between having a hybrid environment and then the way they've architected their their network, um, they still might actually be relying on a lot of their own like infrastructure and networking capabilities. When does a firm invoke the plan? Like when it's official that it's a pandemic or what? what is the gate? If you're U.S. or Western Europe, um, you should have invoked now, um, especially the communication piece. So... And this gets back to the scenarios. So maybe you're not even at 5% absenteeism just yet. Maybe you're you're just at the concern stage. You start communicating now and you start updating the plan and you start testing the plan now. Um, 
So I think in the case of the pandemic, yeah, it's interesting you brought up that point. It's not like a data center outage where there's sort of like a clear activation criteria. Um, I would go ahead and invoke it now. Um, I think to some extent back in early January, the moment this sort of jumped outside of China, we should probably should have started invoking our, our corporate plans. Anything else on the plan part, Stephanie, before we move to business impact? Everyone keeps talking about work from home, work from home. And I've mentioned a few times like the different alternatives to to work from home that companies should actually consider. You know, you might actually have to make some tough choices. I mean, if you look at the airlines recently, like they're canceling flights. Um, so part of when you do a business impact analysis is you sort of estimate um demand up and down for your for your products. And that also leads to a number of business decisions that are really part of your, your business continuity plan as well. So I would just say that um, companies will unfortunately have to need to think about that. That could actually help them survive this in the long run. Making some of those tough decisions now to close locations or to curtail certain services um, means that you actually survive this and then hopefully you can rebuild some of that demand and hire and hire people back. Um, but that that's an important part of this is that actual financial scenario planning as well. We're going to bring in Andrew now to talk about COVID-19's impact on global business. So Andy, could you walk us through at least the business impact within China? We'll start within China today and then kind of move beyond that. The, the impact in China, of course, was concentrated in the city of Hunan and the, the uh, Hubei, Hunan and Hubei province, which race was totally shut down both business-wise and communication around the world. That also impacted travel across China as um, train lines um, and uh, airlines were uh, basically sh- shut down, isolating a lot of people who'd been on vacation at that time. The net impact was massive disruptions of supply chains in and in China and out of China which then, of course, impacted companies in the U.S. or in other parts of the world that depended upon production out of China. And we've seen a number of companies who've announced that they have, uh, that, that these this shutdowns or disruption of supply chains are in turn causing them to make projections of lost sales or because of lack of stock of goods. How long that will last is uncertain. The quicker that China gets back up, then obviously this may turn out to be a one-quarter phenomenon. But to the extent this lasts longer, supply chain disruptions will also last longer. And that in turn will have make this not a one-quarter phenomenon, maybe possibly two, three, four-year phenomenon. It's also the case that it's now not just China, but as other countries, including uh, Japan, including South Korea, have their own cases, they have not taken the same extreme course as uh, China did. But they are putting uh, in quarantines in place. They are shutting down traffic uh, between in and out of regions. This is happening in Italy as well. And that in turn is creating other sources of, of supply chain disruptions in those markets that ripple back into other countries that depend upon supply chain from there. So, Andy, you are our expert tech market forecaster. And as you're looking at the impacts in these regions, where do you think for the tech economy this will start to hit? first and hardest? Well, it, the, the first impacts from a industry or from a, a geographic perspective, let's cover geographic, let's cover industry, and let's cover category. Geographically, of course, China. China is going to almost certainly have a down quarter in terms of tech spending in the first quarter. 
in all likelihood, both Japan and South Korea, which have been in varying stages of weakening, will feel similar impacts, probably have a down, down quarter, potentially longer than that. The U.S. will not feel the same impacts quite yet, um, but we may expect to see more impacts showing as the second and third waves of corona fear starts rippling through the economies of um, the U.S. and of Europe. From an industry perspective, the impacts to date have been primarily within the manufacturing world, where you've had companies who were facing disruption of supplies that have then impacted their ability to produce and sell goods. But it's also having a massive impact on the transportation industry, on the tourism industry, uh, where you're having a, a cancellation of flights, you're having the cruise lines, they're having cancellations or shutdowns of cruises, um, hotels and restaurants and convention centers that are having cancellations of conventions. So the second major impact is going to be on the transportation and tourism industry. A third impact may occur in the healthcare industry where you will, I think, see increased demand for healthcare services that are going to strain resources and cause healthcare providers to perhaps shave down their tech budgets as they realize they have to devote financial resources into expanded healthcare. From a category perspective, I think that we'll see the impact primarily in the three major areas that any CIO looks to cut costs when faced with a need to do so. First of all, computer equipment. Communication computer equipment, in addition to having supply chain disruptions, will also face increased demands as come say, you know, we can wait on upgrading those PCs, we can wait on upgrading those servers, we can delay that. The second area is going to be on tech consulting services as firms turn more cautious about their business outlook in this environment, they're likely to put on the shelf on a lot of new projects. Those new projects would normally have required tech consulting services. Those projects may like be delayed, possibly canceled. And a third area, which is probably relatively small today, is in licensed software, because again, those projects in the past would include licensed software, may still include licensed software, uh, may include SaaS, but there will be a lesser impact as part because companies shifted so much away from licensed software towards the cloud solutions. But the cloud solution vendors will feel some minor pinch, but not a big one. Mostly it's going to be slowed down in new sales, but they really get most of the revenues from legacy clients, and that's not going to be impacted. Is there any tension between what you just ran through, Andy, and what Stephanie was mentioning earlier in terms of work from home and technology needed to enable that sort of environment and some of the the things that CAOs have typically pulled back on. Is there something that executives will need to be uh, working through in the pros and cons of what to invest in and what not to invest in to make sure that business can continue? To a certain degree, yes. It's going to be around the margins, though. You know, okay. The cost for a CIO of enabling workers to work from home is relatively small in their typical IT budgets. What it might mean, though, is that money that had been put plan to go into certain new projects for, let's say, marketing or for sales, uh, they may say, no, this may not be a good time to do that, but let's use some of those dollars for enabling our workers to work more effectively from home since that's a more immediate need. So overall, I don't think there's going to be a major shift in the total amount, but there may be some movement from buckets of, say, that sales and marketing dollars projects into some employee enablement employee experience type project to help employees cope with this. I realize that it's early, but 
let's say this continues on the course we would likely expect it to for a quarter or so. Um, how much of a haircut are you thinking of giving your tech forecast for the year because of what's currently happening? Well, that condition is a really big one. We simply don't know yet both the scale or the time frame for these disruptions. So coming into 2020, we were already expecting to see a bit of a slowdown in the global tech market due to a number of factors, due to the, uh, the ongoing trade war, which in turn has hurt growth, uh, due to weakness in business investment, uh, especially in the U.S. Uh, so we're already looking at some weakness in, in the tech market, we're expecting to go growth to be from about 4.5% in 2019 down to about 4% or so in 2020, both globally and in the U.S. With the data we have so far, that still fits that forecast because there's a good likelihood that if things start to improve, we might just see a one-quarter dip down that could be followed by a rebound in the falling quarter. Still, overall, you know, a slight downturn, but a slight slowdown, but not a real downturn. But there's tremendous uncertainties in the outlook. We're really faced with a situation where things could escalate and snowball, where it could have fears uh, layered on top of fears. Uh, business fears causing companies to cut back on production, consumer fears as layoffs have to happen that then cause business to go even further. Um, the longer that this lasts, this coronavirus lasts, and the more widespread it becomes, the greater the risk that will actually end up in a global recession of some kind. Uh, if that happens, then the tech market forecast will, in fact, become quite a bit bleaker. Uh, we could be looking at a tech market in 2020 that actually is flat or even declines by two or three percentage points, depending upon how severe and long-lasting negative economic impact is. Just one indicator of that is what's happening in oil prices, where we've seen in the last day or so, a dramatic drop in oil prices that now can ripple through in terms of, for example, oil companies declaring bankruptcy because they're not getting enough money. That in turn would hurt banks. Banks then pull back on lending. That could then cause other companies to have trouble finding um, money they need to borrow, which would then, again, contribute to this. So the ripple effects of this are really what you need to watch. It's less the core. It's more the ripple effects of fear. I think are what I'm keeping track of. Stephanie, Andy, thanks for joining us. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. And thanks for having me. And look for continued research from Forrester on this topic. Interested in sharing how your organization is handling the risk associated with the coronavirus? Take our survey at for.com slash pandemic EX. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash pandemic EX. Thanks for listening. <laughs>